this is another Q&A call. We did get a few questions, so I'll go ahead and ask those. But before we do that, I'm curious, since last month or two months ago, depending on when you were on the last Q&A, uh, what have you all been working on? Let's just go around the horn and talk about that for a minute. Jonathan, why don't you start? Sure. I recently launched a podcast about pricing for software developers, how to price your products and services. And that is uh, largely in support of the book I have out called Hourly Billing is Nuts. And I've you know, really been just focusing on sharing educational content, uh, help people with what they're doing. And uh, maybe they'll buy a book, maybe they won't. Either way, I think it'll help. Awesome. How about you, Philip? Let's see. What was this, a month ago we did Q&A? Yep. I think I got a new version of a sales page released for the positioning manual and a new email course that supports that sales page. And then I used a product called uh, Deadline Funnel to set up an evergreen sale. So after people take the position crash course, then for a week they get 30% off the book. And that only goes to people who've taken the crash course and it really is valid just for a week. And now I'm working on uh, starting to develop a, or actually I launched a workshop, a positioning workshop, which is starts tomorrow. And that goes for about uh, five or six weeks. And based on what I learned from that, I'll sort of refine my plan to turn that into an online course. So I think that's it. That's what I've been working on. Nice. How about you, Ruben? So um, I've been doing a lot of teaching, a lot, a lot of teaching. I'm basically scheduled for virtually every day between now and the end of June. So I really hope I don't get sick. <laughs> um, I mean, I've got a few holes in there, but it's kind of crazy. And in between that, I, uh, I'm starting as a very, very part-time CTO of a company here based in Israel to sort of help them put their technology in order. Uh, they've got a few Indian programmers and they've been doing a good job so far, but they need to actually like learn so some more disciplined things. And I've been very proud of myself. I've written to my list, like my main list for programming every week for like the last eight weeks or so. I've got this evergreen content going. It is the best feeling. I get email every week from all these people saying, wow, we're really enjoying it. I mean, it's sort of like John, like I might get some book sales out of it. That would be nice. But it's just like a tremendous, tremendous feeling. Um, and I even hope in the next day, I promised I would send it out on Mondays, but I think I'm going to change that because the other thing goes out on Mondays. I'm hoping the next day or so to start on the, um, the training list that I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, sending out a weekly thing. And that's, like, I've already got 30 or 40 topics, and those are basically an outline for the book that I'm working on slowly but surely. And the book and the mailing list are going to sort of help feed into each other. So that as I write for the newsletter, I'll put into the book and vice versa. So, um, so it's good. So it's good. Lots of fun stuff going on. Nice. Over the last month, I've actually done quite a bit. If you go to devchat.tv slash conferences. You'll see all of the conferences are scheduled through the next year. Um, that includes Freelance Remote Conf, which, it, which is interesting to this audience, as well as JS Remote Conf and Ruby Remote Conf and Rails Remote Conf and Angular Remote Conf. Yeah, yeah, I have a few others. Besides that, I also have the webinar pages set up and I'm going to be putting the webinars in this week to get all those scheduled out for at least the next few months. And uh, that's going to be hopefully in support of selling Get a Coder Job, which is the book that I've been working on for the last while. Writing a book is hard. And then besides that, I've been getting ready for a couple of trips. I'm going to be in Nashville this weekend and New York City the, the week after that. 
One's a Microsoft event and the other one's for a mastermind group that I have been a part of for about a year and a half. And uh, yeah, we're just all getting together in Nashville and hanging out and helping each other out with stuff. And then I just hired a business coach and she's going to be helping me over the next year. Uh, her name is Jamie Masters. Uh, you might know her as Jamie Tardy. She is the host of the Eventual Millionaire podcast. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. It seems like after talking to her and answering the questionnaires that she sent me, I have quite a bit of room for improvement and a lot of it seems to be low hanging fruit. So I'm looking forward to uh, the kind of growth that I'm going to get from that. So all of that going on and just, yeah, looking forward to the future and how this all plays out. So questions. Uh, the first question is, I'll just read it verbatim and then we can kind of boil it down to its essential question. It says, when you are planning a greenfield project, what questions do you ask when you are choosing technologies? For example, Scala Play, Ruby Rails, JavaScript Node, Elixir Phoenix, etc. on the back end, or Ember, Angular 1, React, Angular 2, Elm on the front end. So many choices. This isn't a question about specific technologies or the pros or cons. Rather, it's a question about what questions to ask during an initial design phase to get in the right mindset that transcends particular tech stacks and focuses on the whole project. Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I, I actually had a conversation about this just earlier today with this with this company where I started as the part time CTO. So let me let me take a stab at it initially. So they've been running for like a year, year and a half, and they're doing okay. Like, I mean, the company's certainly doing okay, and the technology is like not crashing too much, not locking up too much, but it is doing that on occasion. And they are one hundred percent based on WordPress, and. I've said to them, look, like, I just don't think this is the right technology for doing custom software development. And they started saying, well, what should we use? And I said, and, and then we finally, after about a 20-minute conversation, realized, you know, it just doesn't matter right now. Because right now, we have other priorities. And yes, if we really do want to do it the right way, we should switch to something else. But that's going to require either getting a different team or retraining the current team and building everything from scratch and so on and so forth. And that is fraught with just incredible dangers. So we decided better to fix what we've got. And the point of my saying this is basically, there are a ton of different technology options out there and something is better than nothing. And often the, the decision you make is gonna have to do with the people and the other constraints much less than what's the perfect technology there. Um, I mean, my typical go-tos are going to be Python and Ruby because I know Python and Ruby, strangely enough. And someone else who's like a PHP master is going to say, well, we should use PHP. But I think the main thing to look at is what do your people know and how easily they're going to get people to work on it because that's going to be your big bottleneck. I, I agree. I think, I think there are definitely other considerations, but they're usually pretty rare. I think the people thing that, as Ruben pointed out, I think that's ultimately the right answer. The, the training is going to cost you way more than whatever trade-offs you're going to make to use the technology you already know, unless you just have some really solid constraints that you're not going to be able to meet with that technology for whatever reason. So, for example, if there was some application where, for whatever reason, there was a real business case or technological case for it to perform in a way that I couldn't get Ruby to, to do, for example, then I would think about, okay... I can't get Ruby to do it. So then I'll start looking at Elixir or Phoenix or something like that, because I know that with its concurrency model, I can get the kind of performance out of it that I can't get out of Ruby or Rails. But overall, for the most part, other than that, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I can see is that if there's some 
shortcut that you can take with one rather than the other. So, for example, if there's some plugin for Angular 1 that hasn't yet been ported over to Angular 2 and it's going to cut my development time in half, then I might go with Angular 1 over Angular 2. But beyond that, I, I completely agree with Ruben that, uh, you know, the, the rule is going to be for me, what am I familiar with and can I do the job in it? I'm going to actually disagree and say that everything should be JavaScript. Full stop. <laughs> that was fighting words. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's a, I, I'm going to agree with both of you guys, but I'll throw like a slightly different angle on it, I suppose, which is that as long as you get into the right class of tool, you're fine picking pretty much anyone. Yeah. But you got to be in the right class of tool. Like you don't want to shave with a lawnmower. You know, if, if somebody's trying to use the wrong tool for the job, yeah. that's a problem. I mean, maybe you could make that argument with WordPress for somebody trying to build like a complicated SaaS or something. You know, I just like plug-in after plug-in after plug-in. But, I, but I, you know, I, I like Ruben's story there where you got to start with the business goals and work your way back from there. And it's a lot of times, not all, certainly not all the time, but many times you could reach the business goals with just about anything. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a question of like, I think you both said, you know, what, what resources do we have laying around? You know, there's a reason why in certain areas, a lot of houses are built out of stone and other areas, lots of houses are built out of pine. A lot of other areas, you know, built out of Adobe, you know, it depends on what the resources are available in your area, which is kind of like the same thing as saying, Hey, we've got a whole bunch of web developers laying around. Let's use web technology. You know, if you have a whole bunch of Scala developers laying around, then fine, use that. But I think the bigger picture is what are the goals? And then there's sort of a timeline factor too. So if it's really important to get points on the board early, get gets get a proof of concept launched in in a week, then really small tactical decisions, well, very tactical decisions can be important. You know, like you know, I'm not a huge fan of Bootstrap, but if we need to get something up over the weekend, Bootstrap's just fine. Mm -hmm. And if that's going to be, if that's your long-term solution, maybe not so much, and you'll end up replacing it later on, but, uh, you know, because you end up just fighting with it more than you're using it, okay, fine. But, you know, bring that up from a strategic standpoint, you just bring that up early and say, hey, are we just trying to, like, get something fast and loose out the door to get funding or get an initial, you know, user base or a pre-sale or something like that? And just get the thing done. It's not going to be perfect. No matter what you choose, it's not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So you've got trade-offs in every direction. And really, I think business goals are step number one. Get the, get the goals from the founder or whoever's you know, really making the big decision. And then make sure you're just in the right class of tools. So you're not using the wrong tool for the job. And then just pick whatever one suits the talents that you have available to you. Yeah. One other thing I'll add, because I know that some people have folks that work for them that you know, they, they want interesting work and doing another Rails project isn't exactly their thing, right? We've done three. We keep hearing about Phoenix and Elixir, so we'll try it. And as long as you're clear about the reasons why and you know what your trade-offs are, then you can make that decision too. But yeah. I've worked on a few projects where I was brought in. I said, why did you use such and such a technology? And the answer was, oh, we hired these consultants and they had never used this technology before. And they thought it would be really cool to use it. So they did it. And like basically the consultants come in 
they do it and they run away. Probably run is the right verb there. And then, <laughs> right? and then the company is stuck with their cool new shiny project built with new technology, but no one knows how to use it. And sometimes they pick a winner, but often they don't. Often they pick these dead end things. And then like they it's great, you know, it's great for my business, right? You'll come in and save them from, from the hell they imposed upon themselves. But I'm very, very uh, wary. Like, I love using new technologies for my own stuff and trying it out. But when it comes to my clients, I'm going to be very conservative and go with something that I know works. And there's a huge community and pool of talent if I get stuck or you know, something happens to me. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more in like corporations where they have, they're going to keep the same team regardless. But yeah, as a freelancer, I don't think I'd take a chance on somebody else's thing. Especially if you're giving a fixed price. That, that, like, yeah. People yeah. like to play with shiny tools when they're getting paid by the hour. But if you're not getting paid by the hour, that's the last thing you'll touch. Yep. I'm going to use what I know. I'm going to use because that's what I know. Even though I know I would, I would be in seventh heaven if I finally got around to like becoming a Ruby expert. I'm just, there's no business case for me to learn Ruby zero. This doesn't make sense. Makes sense. Anything to add, Philip? I not, I mean, not from my tremendous background in, uh, in software development, but, I just empathize with both sides of that because I feel like the with, with a lot of us, uh, there's this sort of artist somewhere locked inside that does want to be able to do conceptual art and then sell that to clients, <laughs> which is really kind of what <laughs> you know what you described, Ruben. Like they, they did some conceptual art and uh, some performance art and sold it to the client, and uh, you just got to find another outlet for that. I mean, aging will will take a lot of that out of you. Aging and cleaning up the mess you've made a couple dozen times will, I think, will take a lot of that out of you. But I, I just now can't help but see that as a kind of frivolous is not the right word, but it's like it's like something you got to deal with inside of yourself. Otherwise, it's going to interfere with you running a successful business. And, I, and that's more to me what I see in this. And I, I don't mean to be insulting to the the questioner. It's just it's a very common pattern. I see it in myself. And it, if you don't manage it, it can really get the best of you. Yeah, it's frivolous. I think the word is immaturity. It's like when I was an yeah. immature developer, everything was a new problem to be solved in a new way with the most cutting edge technology. And yeah. it was just a lack of maturity because like you said, you end up cleaning that up, up enough times and oof. And I think that's part of why I'm sort of becoming, I was a hardliner about, okay, anybody and everybody who wants to work for themselves should narrow down their focus. But more and more, I'm feeling like there is a time and a place to act as a generalist for a while, because I think you get some of that stuff out of your system. (laughs) I think it helps you mature. (laughs) I think open source is a great way to get that out of your system as well. You know, do an open source project, a real open source project, not where it's just you open source some code, but you actually take pull requests and you manage it. Because you'll get people trying to do that to you. Right. Where like, oh, we need to rewrite this whole code base because you used spaces instead of tabs. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll, you'll, you know, you'll mature quickly, let's put it that way. And, and without any risk to any, yeah. you know, you're not going to have to refund anybody. All right. Are we ready for the next one? Says, as a recent graduate, I don't have much connection, so I rely on sites like Upwork to get clients. However, I couldn't get a single project and don't know how to write proper cover letters, set prices, estimate project timelines. Can you please explain how to write cover letters and how you earn clients? 
Well, that's not a big question, is it? <laughs> yeah, see the Freelancer Show podcasts, episodes one through 270. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Question. It really I is. How do I get question. experience when I have no experience? It's, I mean, it's it's tricky. Ultimately, what I tell people is do what you can to make those connections because you're going to get much, much better clients by finding people through people you know. Now, the other thing that I tell people, so so yeah, so go out to the users groups, get involved in the forums, get involved in the online mailing lists, the Google groups, that kind of thing. Speak at some conferences, speak at the remote conferences. I love getting new people in to speak at the remote conferences, by the way. So go, you know, go apply for mine. But yeah, the, I mean, if you absolutely have to go somewhere like Upwork just to get a few projects under your belt so you can say, hey, I've got experience and now you can hire me for more then the things that really help on Upwork in particular is getting a good rating and writing a good proposal for the projects that you're applying to. But Upwork really is kind of, a lot of people will go with the lowest priced person. And anyway, it's it's kind of a crapshoot, in my opinion, going on Upwork versus going somewhere else. And that's not to say that, you know, you're not going to get good clients there, but a lot of those clients are looking for somebody that's overseas, that does a certain kind of work, not very much and you know they're looking for that kind of help and so if, if you're pricing out too high or things like that or you don't have any experience or ratings then it's just going to be hard so overall I, I i would just go way out of my way to meet as many people as i can and get to know folks and then yeah the other part of this is writing those proposals you know reaching out to those cold contacts be they on upwork or something else and you know, really telling them what you can do. And the only thing you can really do there is is contribute as much as you can again to open source and things like that, or to find other opportunities to prove that you can actually do what people need you to do. And then, you know, specialize. And that's that's Philip's shtick, but I'm gonna steal it because it's important. And if you can tell people and show people that you can solve their problem, they don't care how much experience you have. Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. You know, if you can point to something and say, I did this, then it helps a lot. Yeah. I actually did. I mean, back when it was called Elance, I actually did sort of go through there and get projects for a while. And it was sort of when I was desperate, when I didn't have things, when I was between projects. And I would point to my successes, which were pretty rare, and say, see, like say to myself, see, it's, it's worth going there because I get these things. And at a certain point, I sort of looked back and said, oh, my God, I'm spending so much time writing so many proposals to get so few actual things out of it. And I decided that I would just spend time sort of marketing myself in other ways and other channels. But it seems so attractive, right? There are like thousands and thousands of projects. One of them will clearly want me. But I mean, what Chuck said is I think totally right that, I mean, it's very much a price sensitive thing. So if you're anywhere above a tiny amount per hour, then you're probably not going to have any, get many projects. So, I mean, what Chuck said about speaking at conferences and user groups, it doesn't have to be a fancy conference. Like, there's probably a user group in your area. Go speak there. And once you, or just go there, right, and talk to people and say, I am available. And the odds are pretty good someone among them is looking for help because good developers are really hard to come by. If you speak and you demonstrate your expertise, all the more so. And I think now that's going to take time, right? It's not going to be within a week or two. But over a few months, if you do that, you should be able to build up some uh, some good contacts and hopefully some projects that then you can show to people and leverage it up. Yeah, one other thing I'm just going to add on to that is that it, it seems like this person, there are a few indications here 
the English is good, but there are a few indications that they're not a native English speaker, which means that they're probably offshore or nearshore. Um, and if you're one of those folks and you can actually take a little bit lower wage price, value-based pricing, however you want to do it, go talk to onshore developers and see if you can help them out with projects too. So you, you find a freelancer here in the U.S., that's successful, that's doing stuff. You know, maybe you reach out to Reuven because you have some of the expertise that he does and you say, hey, look, you know, I will work for essentially, you know, 50% of the rate or, you know, 60% or whatever is appropriate. But then he makes 40%, 50% profit margin managing somebody who's actually pretty darn good and he may be willing to take a chance on you, you know? And so the Reuven's here in the US and the Reuven's over in Israel and other people in Canada or whatever, where they're close enough to the U.S. and are doing well with freelancing, you know, you you effectively offer them a better value on their time by solving some of these issues for them as well. And then after you've done a few projects there, you can add those onto your resume, get a re reference from your mentor, and then work your way out from there. Yeah, it's almost an apprentice model. Yep. But these people are running businesses and that's just, it's its almost free money for them and you're getting what you want out of it too. They have to do some management on your end, but it's its not as involved as actually doing the work themselves. Oh, I was, I was going to say, I had the thought that you might look at, just try to look for patterns in what you're seeing on Upwork and instead of relying on like verbal communication skills rely more on examples of work, like demonstrations that, that demonstrate that you can build whatever needs to be built. So that might look like kind of scanning through the job listings on Upwork and seeing what people are asking for. You know, are they asking for, you know, something that integrates with uh, MailChimp or are they asking for this other thing? And then build that thing so that you can show it off. To, to demonstrate that you've actually done it. I think that's going to be more persuasive than trying to convince somebody in the abstract. Another thing I would suggest doing is, um, I'm going to speak to, this is, may come out like wrong, so apologies in advance if it does, but the ugly side of Americans is that we fear that we're not going to be able to communicate with people who don't speak English as a first language. So if that's you, and I don't know that it is, but I would suggest uh, to record a video of yourself, just introducing yourself to try to reduce those fears. Unless your English skills are really not good, then you've got to figure, you've, you have to deal with that. Now, maybe that's not you, maybe that, but I just wanted to say that in case that does fit your situation, that kind of getting ahead of that objection that, oh, I'm not going to be able to communicate with this person. I think the easiest way to do that is just to, you know, record yourself. <laughs> Introduce yourself over video, say, I'm a, re I'm a recent student graduate, I'm super excited about this, and I'm looking for clients who need that, my rate is competitive, I'm 100% reliable, and, and just sort of introduce yourself in that way. You don't need to do that kind of stuff later on when you have a portfolio of work to point to, but at the early phases where you're at, it sounds like where you're at now, that, that could be helpful. And then, I mean, the standard advice that I always give is pick a market vertical to go after, because if you get, you know, 10 projects and they're spread across 10 different types of clients, they don't have the same effect as even five projects with the same type of market vertical. So you might just, again, if you've got a lot of free time on your hands, you might be able to just sort of look through Upwork and see if there's any patterns you notice. Like a lot of people are asking for 
Twitter clones or, you know, integrating these two systems and see if you can, you know, build up some even small amount of expertise around that. I think that'll take you a lot further than just kind of a scattershot, take anything you can get approach. I just want to pile onto that because that's essentially when I went freelance, that's mostly where I was at. Now, I had a few years experience as a developer at various corporations nearby, but I had been doing a podcast about Ruby on Rails for a year. I had a year or two's worth of screencasts out there, including a video on how to build a Twitter clone in Rails. And I was getting work off of it. And part of it was, oh, this guy is building something that looks kind of like what I want. And part of it was, I've listened to the podcasts, I've watched the screencasts, and I really feel like I know this guy. And so the video really just puts you front and center and they get to see who you are, be it a video of a screencast of your screen or a video of your face where you're talking or both. It puts you in there as a person and it puts you in there as a person who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll pile on also. <laughs> and say that a couple of things Chuck just mentioned take kind of a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And yes. if, if the if the person is in a particular rush, you know, rent is due, whatever, then that's the kind of thing that will drive people to Upwork and Craigslist and Fiverr and all of the other marketplaces. But what you can do in addition to that is to do direct outreach to, if you do pick a target market, maybe maybe you have some familiarity with whatever, you know, plastics manufacturers or, you know, our perennial ex, uh, example, dentists or farming equipment manufacturers, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, if, if, you're, if your family was in some business or is in some business, or if you have relatives in HR or whatever, it doesn't matter, pro uh, property management, just pick it, just focus. I'm going to focus on doing websites for property managers because you know that you can get in touch with a bunch of property managers and you'll have trust because you've had a connection, like an actual connection in real life. So if you do that, then you should be able to sort of focus your message down and go through your network of friends and family and colleagues and say, hey, you know, I'm focusing, you know, I've been doing web development. I just got out of school. I've been doing web development through school and I really want to focus on property management. You know, do you know anybody you could introduce me to? I, you know, I'd like to talk to them and see if there's something I could do for them you're going to have a lot of built-in trust already because of the personal relationships that are connecting those, you know, that group of people. And that's a outreach like that is a very quick way to, you know, get some money rolling in if that's what you're looking for. Plus one. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all acknowledge it's a super challenging situation when you got zero, you know, track record of doing the thing you want to do. I mean, if you said, okay, I've got, a year of runway because my parents are paying all my expenses for a year and I'm living with them. Some of the advice I think we're giving would be the same and some might be different, like those more speculative things where you, you like build the thing so you can show it off and demonstrate that you can build it would maybe be better things to focus on. So uh, a lot of it depends, but just know that it's, we all know it's not an easy situation to be in. And, and sometimes just taking a job for a specific period of time, knowing that that's the thing you're going to do to get, that runway may be also a viable choice in some situations. But yep. you didn't think you'd hear me say that. <laughs> <laughs> Big advocate of people who do anything and everything to remain self-employed, but uh, sometimes taking a job could make sense. Yeah, well, and when I got my start as a programmer, that's, you know, I had worked for 
two or three companies doing what I was doing before I went freelance doing what I was doing. So yeah, same here. All of my, all of my confidence about going out on my own came from full-time employment. Yep. So it's not that uncommon, but I understand wanting the, the freedom and lifestyle around freelancing. Yeah. And I mean, setting price, gosh, there's a ton of freelancer show episodes that speak specifically to that. That might be worth looking at, but you talk about a cover letter. Uh, this is the person who asked the question. And I think none of us had mentioned that because it's not how we get work. It's not how most people at even beyond the basic level of freelancing get work. It's just, that's a getting a job thing and, and mm-hmm. getting freelance work is much more about showing that you can solve a specific problem, building trust, that kind of thing. Cover letters usually don't do that. Yeah, I think that's a, an artifact of Upwork because, I mean, I've hired people off Upwork. Heck, I hired people off Upwork last week. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, they ask you to write kind of a cover letter that it's essentially, hi, I'm interested in your project and here's why and here's what I can do for you and here's why I think it's going to work out and blah, blah, blah. And the estimate project timeline is also something that, you know, again, it's something that I think Upwork gives you the option of asking for. I, I don't usually ask for that. I usually either do a straight bid or I give people a, a reasonably low threshold for their hours to see what they can do for me. And then if they do a great job, then I usually have like 10 more of the same thing that I need done. And so then I'll hire them for that. But anyway, if you're going to write a cover letter, then do whatever you can to find out as much about them as you can. And then get in there and say, Hey, it looks like you do podcasts for programmers and you have these online conferences and it looks like this project. Cause the latest project was find a list of NoSQL databases and speakers that speak about NoSQL. And uh, that way I can contact them to see if they want to come speak at the remote conference. And so if you're doing that kind of thing, then if somebody had come to me and instead of saying, hey, I do really good research, blah, blah, blah. Now I hired five people to do the job and I'll keep the one that does the best job and have them do that for the next couple of conferences. But yeah, if, if I was only in a position to hire one and make it work, it'd be the person who came to me and said, hey, I looked at devchat.tv. I get what you do. I get what you're about. I can see where this you know, has value to you. I've already done some preliminary research and you can see it here. Man, I'd pick that person up in a heartbeat. Yeah, demonstrate some hustle. Yep. And then estimating project timeline. I mean, honestly, again, if you've done a little bit of that preliminary work where it was, you know, I spent a half hour doing research on NoSQL, And it looks like I'm probably going to spend another two hours doing this kind of research and compiling all the information for you. Then again, you've demonstrated, hey, I've already been working on this. I get why you want it. And I'm going to give you the best outcome probably in two hours. And then if you wind up going to three and you let me know, hey, look, I'm almost done and I'm a little over two hours, then I'm good. But yeah, Upwork isn't the best place to find clients in my opinion. Um, I'll also add, I've, um, I've met a lot of people who have contributed to open source projects and got involved in that for a whole variety of reasons, one of which was to sort of beef up their resume. And mm-hmm. granted, this is more of a sort of technical angle than a business angle, but open source projects are all, well, I think most of them are desperate for people, desperate for help, and very, very grateful when people come and say, yeah, I want to help you out. So if you were to choose a project that, I mean, has to be sort of middle size, right? Not incredibly popular. Well, I guess that could, not necessarily a bad thing, but definitely not tiny. And if you go and if you spend, and again, it's going to be some time, you spend some time helping and adjusting and improving. If that software is being used by companies, at some point, 
companies will come to you as one of the people who know, and they'll ask you to help them out with it. I mean, Eric Davis, who used to be on the show, right? That's like a classic example of that with Redvine, where he helped out a little bit with it and helped out some more, helped out some more. And then he became like, I think it was the main maintainer of it and was certainly hired for a ridiculous number of consulting projects working on it. And it might take some time, but it will allow you to build your credibility in a very visible way. And in a small community, they'll also refer work to each other when it comes up. Yeah, I don't know if Eric was ever the primary maintainer of Redmine, but he by far had the largest number of plugins for Redmine. And so people would hire him because they were already using two or three other plugins that he wrote. And it was really easy to kind of peel off from there and go, well, we need another one and we want it to work with these ones. And so it, it worked out really well. And another thing with the um, open source community is that even on the larger projects, a lot of them have a documentation team that is hard to fill. There's a book called Apprenticeship Patterns by Dave Hoover, and he talks a lot about basically how to find and uh, build uh, or find mentors and build relationships like this. And if you can make relationships like this where you're what doing what he calls sweeping the dojo, so you're answering GitHub issues and you're um, troubleshooting particular bugs and, and zeroing in on what the issue is, or if you're working on the documentation, as I said before, or you're doing some other just code cleanup, writing tests, all that kind of stuff, uh, getting it set up on Travis CI. If you're doing that kind of work, then you're still getting credit for being part of the team on that particular project. And I'll tell you, if you're doing enough of those jobs that nobody else wants to do, you'll get noticed by the team that's working on the open source. And if you're doing that, then if you can put a reference up and say, well, I spent a bunch of time helping with Ruby on Rails, for example, which is a huge open source project, or you know, one of these mid-range, mid-level projects, you know, I spent time working on and helping with this project. They'll go ask the team lead and the team lead will go, holy cow, they were a ton of help. Mm. And, you know, you can kind of get credit there, even if you weren't directly contributing to the code for very long. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I have some students who are contributing to the open APS system, which is a artificial pancreas piece of software, like a, a whole branch. What am I trying mm-hmm. to say? It's like a whole suite of software for people who have, you know, there's iOS apps, there's all sorts of, you know, server-side stuff, there's a million things. And the uh, the reason I bring it up is because instead of it being a huge project, it's actually not that many, uh, I mean, compared to Rails, there's not that many people working on it, but the people who are using it, to say they are passionate about the project is an understatement. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is life-changing. So, you know, to, to contribute even in a small way to something that is massively important to people, uh, you'll find people, will, I mean, you, you might find patrons coming out of the woodwork to just fund you to keep working on it, like directly. Side note on that, we did an interview with Scott Hanselman, who is a well-known programmer. He's actually a type 1 diabetic, and we interviewed him for the iFreak show and talked about that kind of system that works with insulin pumps and things like that to right. automatically deliver insulin. Yeah, I don't know that much about it, but... That's but I, pretty. I, I just know that the people who are using them are yes very thankful. Yep. Well, it's it's something you have to constantly be monitoring, and if you have kids, you then you have to monitor them. And yeah, anyway, it 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 really does change the shape of someone's life. So yeah, definitely people care about that. 
All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. And Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is a thousand bucks and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at hire.com slash freelancer show. I'll ask the next question and it's sort of similar to the other one. Hello, I want to freelance as a front end developer. I have no job experience, dropped out of college and live in a third world country. The problem is that on freelance websites and LinkedIn, there are places for experience, company and education. I have none of them. The only experience I have is several projects I made for myself and my friends. How do I avoid the gap in these two? And how do I present myself with projects that I made? Should I lie that I'm a student and work for somebody? I love what you guys do. Hope you answer. Huge hugs, Roz. Roz, never lie. That's never a good idea. But I would definitely say that, I mean, this is going to be sort of a repeat of what we just said. It's like, just show what you do. I mean, I've been in a position in, in a bunch of different capacities to need to hire people. So uh, I've needed to hire people directly for myself to do design on my own personal projects. I've needed to hire people for firms where I was, you know, upper management. I've had to review applications at Fortune 50 companies for people who wanted to get full-time jobs. And I never cared at all about their education or their past experience or blah, blah, blah. It's all like fine. It's like, oh, maybe I care a little bit. But all I really care about is what can you do? So show what you can do and say, you know, in the education thing, be like, you know, something personal and clever and just be like, you know, I didn't go to school because I was too busy working on this and this and this. Or whatever. I mean, I, I can't imagine, I suppose it depends on what they pick for a career, but I can't imagine that my kids are going to go to college. It doesn't even make any sense to me in the traditional sense of college. I don't think it's that important for this kind of thing uh, because I've seen people who have degrees that stink. So it, it just doesn't indicate anything. I mean, I went to music school and I actually graduated and that was a bad sign because if I was better, I would have gotten snapped up by somebody before I had a chance to graduate. And I feel the, kind of the same way about software people. It's like, if you're amazing, then just do the work. Just show your work, you know, and, and don't be, I'm not saying you're ashamed that you didn't go to school, but you, it sounds like you're presenting it as if it's a deficiency. Just be honest. Like, I'm new. I just love this stuff. Here's what I've done. Didn't see the need to spend money on school to validate myself. And I haven't gotten hired yet. So maybe you'll be the first one. That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think listing an employer of self-employed is fine. Uh, to me, that's not lying. That's that's just a way to not have an empty field in in that part of the the thing you're trying to fill out. And I mean, self-taught is fine for education. Like, 
I guess I'm saying the same thing, Jonathan, is just the sort of more boring, but yet still true and factual way of saying those things is education, (laughs) self-taught, employment, self-employed. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. Self-taught, love that. That's actually, that would be, I would put that resume at the top of the pile. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that that says. One other thing just to point out, because uh, Roz mentioned LinkedIn and freelance websites. LinkedIn has a spot for endorsements of expertise. And so you can talk to people and ask them to endorse you. The other thing that's on there is you can actually put in projects. And if you're writing software for a particular group that can benefit from it, you can also put that under service. And so you can put those things in there they just don't necessarily wind up going under your job experience. But if I went in there and I saw, oh, look, uh, Roz has written, you know, these three applications in Angular or React or some other front-end tool and has learned some back-end stuff enough to get that together or is using Firebase or something like that, and you have those skills listed there, then I'm probably going to talk to you if I care about those skills or if it looks like you've solved some problems that I need solved. And so you can still put them on there. You just don't wind up putting them under your experience as a company that you worked for. And even then you could still put that on there, donated time working on a project that I knew would benefit people who needed budgeting software. Depends on your situation. You may not even need a LinkedIn profile. That's the other thing is yeah. if you could punt on this issue and instead set up a little one-page website that features your work has some contact info or a call to action of some sort. I mean, if you're going to do that, don't get caught in the trap of, you know, talking about the art of the technology behind what you did, but talk about how it has a business application or how it solves a problem. So I'm not saying for sure you should put up a website because that can be for a lot of people, a, a sort of a rabbit hole that doesn't produce good results, but that might be an alternative to, playing the LinkedIn game, there may be no upside <laughs> to having a LinkedIn profile. So just don't do it. Yeah. It's probably, I, I imagine that the person is that Roz is thinking, you know, that, that leads would come in through that channel. And, and like Philip's saying, it's, I mean, I, if I've had six leads come in through LinkedIn, I'd be surprised, you know, in years and years of being on LinkedIn. So now if I, Roz, just to give you a sense of maybe what I would do if your name came across my desk as something that might be helpful to me, I am going to Google you. So something needs to come up. And if that's a bunch of really popular or reasonably popular GitHub repos or commits on, you know, projects that are of interest to me or an about.me profile that tells me a little bit about yourself, or maybe some screencasts that you did on YouTube, those are all equally valuable, Mm. but, but something needs to come up. If nothing comes up, I'm going to be scared. So I, I'm going to want to see something. So you have to put something out there, but, it, but you know, to, to echo Philip's point, it doesn't have to be LinkedIn at all, it's as long as something comes up. Yep. And then the other thing that I would just put out there is, again, I mean, we talked about this, but go out and meet people, uh, join some online communities, find some freelancers that are doing what you want to do, get to know them, see if you can get some mentorship or some work from them. And just a lot of this is going to come down to who you know. And so if you can get to know the people who are going to be able to get you started, get you going, who have already gotten past this particular hill, then that's going to pay off for you. Yeah, like maybe send a question into a popular podcast. 
<laughs> We've gotten a few from Roz. Well done, Roz. Well done. <laughs> you, you mentioned living in a third world country, which I don't view as a, a liability at all. I think you can make that into an asset, especially from a cost perspective. And I know that that maybe seems like it's opposite the advice we're always giving, but you do have to start somewhere. And I don't think your location has to be a liability. You can always talk about, you know, how you can be getting done stuff done while your clients are sleeping and have things ready to review, but there, yet there's still some time zone overlap so you can communicate real time. So you can kind of, um, you know, dance on both sides of that issue and, and talk about how it's, it's an asset to your client that you're remote. And so again, don't just don't, let anybody tell you that that's automatically a liability. I don't think it is. No, but I will tell you as someone who uh, lives outside the U S or outside uh, you know, North America. So I've been in touch with clients over the years and some of them have just said, well, no, don't, don't want to work with some, someone outside the U S. And for a while I would try arguing with them. I'd be like, but I have this experience and, but I work crazy hours and, but they don't care. Some people are just not going to be interested and don't let that get you down because there are a lot of other people out there and some of them will be flexible and some of them will be very happy to work with you. And it, it might just take also a lot of ratcheting up. You know, you don't have experience. That's okay. So you'll work on something really small for a little amount of money and then you'll do something a little better. And especially like people sort of assume, Oh, someone living in a third world country so I can pay them peanuts. If it means that you can up your resume and like show something that you've done, that's okay at first. I mean, obviously, like it's not okay for the medium long term, but at first to sort of show people and show off your abilities, that's great. And then, you know, the next person you talk to, you can charge a little more. And, you know, over a number of months, you'll be up to uh, charging not a small amount. I should also point out that even in third world countries, they do have need for software engineers. And they do often pay pretty reasonably for people with those talents. So I wouldn't just, you know, sort of write off working for people locally especially since, I mean, they speak your language, you sort of insights into their culture, into their business, you're local, so you can go meet with them in person, which helps to build trust. Um, and worst case, you know, even if they pay very little, that's a good way to sort of, again, ratchet up your resume and have things that you can show to people, you know, to, to show off and get better projects. And I like what, what Johnson said, by the way, about LinkedIn. I actually do get contacted from people on LinkedIn all the time. And it's all recruiters asking me to yes. work for their company. So, like, actual projects coming through is really, really rare. But annoying messages, not so much. So, <laughs> save yourself the agenda and, and don't worry about your LinkedIn profile just yet. Yeah, GitHub, answer questions on Stack Overflow, contribute on GitHub, create an about.me page, and just do good work and put it out there. All right. Well, we have a few people live in the room if you have any other questions, go ahead and drop them in on us. Otherwise, we will answer them here in another month. I think our next Q&A is on the 13th of December. So looking forward to that. Well, I don't see any other questions coming in, so I'm going to hit the big red button. Thanks for all the questions. These are always fun. We'll catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.